would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 2. Acts, chapter 2, and verses 37 and following will be our text for this morning. We are today in the second Sunday of our 40-day time of prayer and fasting. And each of these Sundays, GIC accepted, we're focusing on one of four themes that run throughout our 40-day booklet. Hopefully you have those and you're following along with us and praying through those themes and prayer requests that are listed there on each day and working through uh, those brief devotional messages that are included in the booklet as well. Last Sunday, we talked about abiding in Christ. Abiding is what we hope to be the outcome of these 40 days, that you would walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. This is the promise of God's word. The focus is a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus. That's the focus that hangs over the entirety of the 40 days. That's the focus that hangs over every worship service. That's the focus that hangs over every devotional thought, every time of prayer. Our dream, our goal, our purpose in life is to know God and to make him known. Abiding in Christ is just a part of who we are. This morning, I want to talk about connecting. Connecting with the Father through the blood of His Son, Jesus. Connecting with the church through the ordinance of baptism. And then connecting with the individual members of the fellowship we call our own. Making meaningful connections with brothers and sisters, even those seated around you here this morning. Uh, every statistician, Barna, Lifeway, and various other research groups are telling us that one in five churches will not have the ability to reopen as COVID uh, winds down and churches begin to open for services again. What I'll say to you concerning that is that one of the common characteristics among those churches that will come out of the pandemic better than they went in is a strong small group ministry. We call that connect groups within the context of our church here. There was a time when I would have had to work hard to convince a church or a congregation of the absolute necessity of sharing and fellowship together. I'm hopeful that for you, by experience and through the teaching of God's word, that time has passed. We have learned in painful ways the essential nature of enjoying fellowship one with another over the past several months, and I want to press on that issue just a little here this morning. Now, shortly after I came here, we looked at the very passage that we're going to be looking at this morning on so, sort of a superficial level. I want us to dive a little deeper into Acts 2, 37 through 47 this morning, and I want you to look for ways that the church is establishing meaningful connections within its membership. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. If you found your way there, I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Here's what the Bible says. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is to you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We've begun in sort of a strange spot. Verse 37 simply says, when they heard this, they came under deep conviction and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Well, what is the this? The this is the sermon being preached by Peter at the celebration of Pentecost. Jesus had died and was resurrected from the grave. Pentecost falls after the Passover celebration. Many Jews would have traveled into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost festival. And dispersed in the crowd that day was not only the apostle Peter, but other disciples. And in my estimation, it's not just Peter who's preaching, but all of the disciples. Peter is the focal point of Luke's telling of this experience. He picks Peter from the crowd. He picks Peter from the disciples to focus on his preaching. But it seems as though the twelve were scattered throughout the multitude, each of them boldly and publicly proclaiming that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, who died for our sin and who rose again the third day. We, we might begin this conversation on connecting by asking how it is that we connect with God. Peter is providing an answer to that question. We connect with God through the atoning blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The this is the gospel. This is how we are connected to God. I'm impressed most every Sunday I have the thought, there will be someone here today who will come in with the question of how I can be right with God, how I can be forgiven of my sin, how I can be a Christian. What is it about these people? What is it that they're up to? What we're up to is this, entering into relationship with the God of heaven who is perfect in his righteousness. In spite of his otherness, in spite of our sinfulness, we may be reconciled to God who is in heaven through the shed blood of Jesus. His blood being shed to atone for or to cover for our sin. We are washed by faith in the blood of the only begotten Son of God. So that as God looks upon us, he sees not our sins, but the perfect righteousness of his son. The way to be connected with God. And this is the foundational issue, right? The way to be connected with God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The message that Peter preached to the people was that the bow of God's wrath was bent against them. The fire of God's anger at our sin was kindled hot, but that Jesus had drank the bitter cup of God's wrath that we may take shelter from his judgment in the blood of Jesus. This is the message. We connect with God. And by the way, connecting with God is essential to, it is the foundational work for connecting with the body, with the individual members of the body and the body at large. We might even look to last week's text as an illustration of this connecting that takes place by faith in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, I am the true vine and you are the branches. He describes the work of the vine dresser. But one thing that you'll note about the branches is that as they are connected to the true vine, which is the source of their ability to bear fruit, they are by necessity connected to the other branches on the vine. Being reconciled to God, being connected to God, necessarily means being connected with the people of God. Those in the crowd cried out to Peter and presumably the other disciples, brothers, what must we do? How can we be saved? How can we be reconciled? Peter says in verse 38, repent. Turn away from your sins. See Jesus for his matchless work. Brothers and sisters, when you see Jesus for who he is, the natural response is to repent, to cast aside all care, all concern for the things of this world, having realized that what we stand to have in Jesus cannot be matched by the petty counterfeits that this world peddles. What we have in Jesus is priceless. What we have in Jesus is matchless. Peter says, repent. Obviously, a note that calls us away from sin, a note that calls us away from the things of this world, but a natural reaction given what we've come to know about the beauty of our Savior, Jesus. Sometimes people stumble over the story of the rich young ruler. Are you familiar with that story? Where there was a rich young man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In essence, he said, how can I be saved? And Jesus answered in a strong way, doing what Jesus always does so marvelously, sidestepping the question that's asked with the mouth and touching the question that exists in the heart. And Jesus said, you must obey the law. And the rich young ruler says, oh, but I've obeyed the law. And Jesus says, there's just one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now, people stumble sometimes over that story, believing that somehow Jesus is requiring us to meet a certain moral standard or even to sell away all the things that we have. The reality is that for most of us, Jesus won't call us to sell off everything that we have and to give the proceeds to the poor, but he does call each of us universally, without exception, to see him for who he is so powerfully and to bear such passion for him that we would gladly forego the pleasures of this life for one moment of walking in close fellowship with Jesus. We have counted Christ above all else. We have tasted and we have experienced that indeed he is good. And the natural product of that encounter with the risen Christ is to turn away from the cares and the concerns of this world. Peter says, repent. But he doesn't stop there. He says, repent and be baptized 
each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, now here, sometimes I think folks struggle with this verse, and it's taken out of context from time to time. They're being baptized as an expression of their having received the forgiveness of sin. You just need to understand prepositions here. It's really not as complicated as what some people try to make it when they pull this passage for a proof text. But this is always the passage that comes to me when people say, you know, somebody told me that I needed to be, that baptism is what saves me. You know, Jesse, Jesse James is wanted for armed robbery means that he's wanted because he did armed robbery. We're not looking for him so that he can do armed robbery. It's just the way prepositions work. Be baptized for the remission of sin. Be baptized as an expression of your faith in Jesus. Be baptized as an expression of your having received the forgiveness of sins. This is the entry point into the fellowship of the church, right? Baptism is how those followers of Christ distinguish themselves from those about them. This was the way they gave public testimony to what Christ had done invisibly in their life. We've asked first how we can be connected to God. The answer is the gospel. We might ask second how we can be connected to the church. And the answer is through baptism. Even before conversations about membership and a technical sense of the word, there was baptism as the outward symbol, as the ordinance that indicated a change of, of identity. We're now identifying not with our background, not with our ethnicity, not with even uh, our language, not with even the color of our skin, not with our social standing or our financial positioning, not with our status within the culture. We identify exclusively with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Repent and be baptized, Peter said, for the remission of your sins. Now, in, in, in almost every congregation of any size, there are those folks who would say, I have believed, but there's something about baptism. I'm just reluctant. I have a fear of water. If you're being in public, all these people looking at me, there's any number of issues that might prevent one from being desirous of being baptized. And I just want to say to you that, that baptism is the first and one of the most exciting opportunities that we have to bear witness to what Jesus has done for us. You, you get to preach the sermon. Sometimes when children come and we're talking about baptism, I'll say, you get to preach the sermon on that Sunday, and you should see the looks I get. But that's really what baptism does. You get to preach the message in the baptismal waters. You get to say without ever opening your mouth that I have died to self and been raised by resurrection power. You get to say without ever opening your mouth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin, that he was buried in a borrowed grave, that in the dark of night and behind the cloak of that stone, the life was breathed back into the body of Jesus. The cold body of Christ began to breathe again, and he walked out in great victory. You get to say without ever uttering a word that the power that raised Jesus from that garden grave abides within me. I've been raised to walk in the newness of life by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how we identify with the body. And I would encourage you. In, in fact, 
We might use even stronger language than that. And note that Jesus has commanded you that as believers in the gospel, that, that you come into the fellowship of the church by way of baptism. Now, there are always people, again, in every congregation of any size, who are sort of peripheral attenders, come in and come out. And some people even find that to be their preference. They just want to come in and come out. Little fanfare, in, out, little imposition. You don't have to have lots of conversations, all that kind of stuff. And and we just want this sort of 30,000-foot experience where we're just sort of flying by, but we're never truly interfered with or bothered with the business of deeper connectivity with the church. And I want you to know, hear me this morning, that you will never, you will never adequately walk worthy of the call with which you have been called as a follower of Jesus Christ apart from the fellowship of the local church. And I want you to know that the New Testament knows nothing of peripheral attenders or peripheral members who are seldom imposed upon by the life of the church or who are unwilling to make great sacrifices for the strengthening of the church and for the advancement of his kingdom. You need the local church to be the follower of Jesus Christ that you have been called to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I hope that if you're within that category of people that you're wrestling with that and that the Spirit would do a great work in you this morning, that you would shore up those weak areas of your life. I know that in our culture, there's this rugged and radical individualism that has convinced us all that we can go it alone, like the Lone Ranger. We just go do our thing. But I want you to know that Christendom does not work that way, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has not left us on our own. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are no ruggedly individual followers of Jesus Christ that operate in their own area without interference or without assistance or sacrifice for those about them. We have been called together in the body of Christ. Again, I hope that I don't have to convince you after months in isolation that we as human beings desperately need fellowship one with another. And I want you to know that even more so as Christian human beings, not only do we need fellowship one with another, we need fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You will always struggle to meet the call of God on your life apart from the fellowship of the church. I I know there are lots of variables at play in the world around us today, but it is not a coincidence that after months of churches across our country having their doors closed and fellowship among those bodies ceasing, that we look around at a land that is literally burning down around us. Not only do you need the fellowship of the church, but unbeknownst to the world, they need the fellowship of the church as well. Getting connected to the Father happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Being connected to the local church comes through the ordinance of baptism. But then there are those deeper, more intimate connections that are established with the individual members of the church. Look down to verse Number 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. 
an early indication that there is some accounting, some formal understanding of membership within the body of Christ. They're numbered here in our passage. And they're being added to the already existent body of Christ followers. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now I want us to think about this in a very simplistic way. This is not revolutionary stuff this morning. This is basic stuff. This is walk with Jesus 101. How is it that those early disciples, those new Christ followers, developed deeper, meaningful relationships one with another? What do we see happening in them immediately after coming to faith in Christ? The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. In the language of our day, they participated in small group Bible studies. That is, in essence, what's happening there. The apostles are instructing them in their understanding of the Scripture, training them as Jesus trained them, teaching them the Scripture. They're now seeing the Old Testament through the lens of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and they're seeing things differently than they'd been able to see them before. Sure, there were a handful throughout history who were able to see what God was up to. There were wise men from the East who came understanding the signs and times of the day. There were a handful that seemed to see it when it came. There was Anna, the prophetess, and others referenced in the Gospels. But now, given what Jesus had done through the cross and with his resurrection, they were able to see things with crystal clarity now. You remember the movie, The Sixth Sense? It's been a long time since I saw the movie. It's probably not fit to watch, so don't never take a movie reference as go watch the movie. Brother Wade said it would be okay. So if you haven't seen it, I'll ruin it. You'll never go watch it. At the end, you find out that the brother was dead the whole time, right? And then you think back, and they take you through this whirlwind trip through the movie, and it all makes sense. And you can never re-watch the movie. It's over at that point. You can't see it the same way. It's exactly what's happening in the experience of the disciples. They knew the scripture. They'd been taught the scripture in the synagogue and at home for all their life. They committed to memory more scripture than any of us perhaps combined. They were memorizing books in the Old Testament. All of the Psalms would have been committed to memory by a good Hebrew boy by the age of 12 or 13. But now they were seeing things differently. They were meeting together under the instruction of the apostles to aid their understanding that their hearts might burn within them an Emmaus Road experience in the Bible study time that they might know Jesus better. If if you're new to the fellowship of our church, that happens within the context of connect groups. And if you're not catching on to this by now, a major focus of this morning's message is to exhort and encourage you strongly that you be connected to a connect group ministry here within the body of our church. That is precisely what these these 3,000 brand new disciples began to do immediately upon their conversion. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. There is value in the gathering of the church, even when not participating in what we often think of as spiritual endeavors. 
There doesn't necessarily have to be an agenda when you meet together with other brothers and sisters for that to be a beneficial time spent together. What seems clear here, there's a reference to their meeting together for the breaking of bread. Perhaps it seems that that is a direct reference to the breaking of bread and the sharing of the cup in the celebration of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But it becomes clearer in the latter part of this passage that if this is a specific reference to the Lord's Supper, they're not only meeting together to take of the bread and the cup, they're meeting together to share meals they, they are spending time together in fellowship. This congregation, our assembly, this, this body is not a Sunday morning body. And by, by, the, by the way, the reason there's such a sense of connectedness on the part of these disciples is because there seems to be in those days a better understanding that we have adopted a new identity in Jesus. We are strangers and pilgrims and sojourners and brothers and sisters. The sooner you can realize that this world is not our home, that we do not belong here, the sooner you can set your heart at ease at the insanity that you see around you. And the faster you'll run to others who have embraced their new identity as strangers and pilgrims in Jesus. And you'll cling to one another. And you'll look together around at this crazy, crooked, and perverse generation and look up for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourselves over to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Spend time together. It's become popular now. Someone said this. I'm sure it originates with a single individual some years ago that, that a new member or a guest in a Sunday morning service without someone with them, sitting alone is an emergency. I like that philosophy. You ought to be looking around for folks that you can connect with, folks who may not have made those meaningful connections, may not have established the kind of relationships that would sustain them and hold them up during seasons of great difficulty in their own life. Look for them. Know that they need that. Know that you need that. Know that that's a part of God's call on our life, that we would have that kind of connectedness. We need one another. Meaningful, heartfelt relationships that would drive us to our knees when our friends and brothers are struggling, that would cause us to leap in celebration when our brothers and sisters are rejoicing in the favor of God on their life. We just need to be closely knit together as the body. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, Bible study. They gave themselves to the fellowship. Oh, you, you need the fellowship, the breaking of the bread that is they shared in hospitality. What, one of the benefits of the limited space that we have here on the campus is, is that many of our connect groups and any future established connect groups will have to meet in homes. Can I just encourage you that there's, there's, a, there's a different sense of being connected when you meet together with someone in your living room or in their living room than you can ever really foster in the neutral ground, the neutral territory of the classroom. Make it a goal, make it a, a priority, make it a part of your ministry to invite, to welcome people into your home, to show hospitality. 
I became convinced a, a, a few years ago now, four or five years ago, that as a, as a pastor, as an elder, one of the qualifications for eldership and one of the qualifications for deacon is that we be hospitable. My conviction is it's really hard to be hospitable without bringing people into your home. O- open your home to others and love and cherish the fellowship that's enjoyed there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Notice the definite article. It almost reads strangely in the English. This is probably a reflection of the fact that Jews were accustomed to the prayers, meaning three distinct prayer times throughout the day, in the morning, at noon, and in the evening. They gave themselves together to the prayers. I've believed for a long time, if you really want to know about the power, if you really want to know about the health of a church, look to its prayer gatherings. And here the disciples, these early disciples, these 3,000 were giving themselves to prayers together, morning, noon, and night. Someone has said, if you want to know the popularity of the preacher, come to the Sunday night service. We don't do that anymore, but you understand the reference. If you want to know about the popularity of the church, come to the Sunday morning service. But if you want to know about the popularity of God, go to the prayer meeting. That's where you'll find out. There, there is something about the gift of prayer that binds us together. There is something about the gift of prayer that attunes our heart to the heart of God. Brothers and sisters, pray together. Pray together. Pray earnestly for those around you. Now, what remains of our text gives some description of of the product of a church that enjoys this level of connectedness. In verse 43, the Bible says, Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Think about that. Then fear, that is awe, wonder, amazement, came over everyone. The church is together in lockstep given themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They've been saved. There's a zealousness in their heart to get the good news of the gospel out there, that the world would know that Jesus Christ saves. And the Bible says that fear, that wonder, that awe, that amazement came over everyone. This is not about the church. It's not that the church is in awe, in fear, in amazement, in wonder. It's that Jerusalem has been struck with fear and awe and wonder and amazement. This is the product of a church that's walking in unity, deeply, meaningfully connected one with another, deeply, meaningfully meaningfully connected with God, abiding in Christ and connected within its body. We spend so much time, especially as American Christians, wringing our hands and wondering what we're going to do with the world around us. Isn't it about time we let the world wonder for a little while what they're going to do with the church? The Bible says here, a church abiding in Christ, well-connected one with another, strikes fear and wonder and amazement, fear in a positive sense, in the heart of the world about them. There's an intrigue about this thing that God seems to be doing among his people. They've embraced this new identity. They're not the people they used to be. Their activities are altogether strange. They're different. And there's awe and wonder and amazement in the hearts of those who've observed what God has done. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. This is what it ought to look like, right? A family. 
You, you, know who, you know who really appreciates and cherishes the church? It's, it's people that come into the church without a, a biological family. Or their family's all jacked up and crazy. I might know a little something about that. And you, and you come in and you find grandmothers and grandfathers and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends that last a lifetime. This is what it ought to be. But it can never and it will never be that for you if you're determined to remain a peripheral member, never imposed upon, never making a sacrifice for the well-being of those around you. Look at what you're missing. Look at, look at what you're foregoing in the name of convenience, in the name of beating someone else to one of 14 Mexican restaurants at lunch today. Here they had all things in common. They would sell their stuff in order to meet the need of a brother or a sister about them. This is the kind of relationships we're looking for, right? Verse 46 says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who are being saved. There's, there's a kinship and a camaraderie that exists within the church that ought to be impenetrable by the things of this world. There ought to be nothing in this world that could tear asunder what God has put together among his people by the work of the Holy Spirit. Shame on us if we ever allow that something would undermine what God has so beautifully established within the body of Christ. But in spite of that kinship, that strong sense of connectedness that exists among us, we're not living a life that is isolated or insulated from the world around us as a product of that relationship. Rather, we are more effective in reaching the world around us the deeper and more intimate our connections are with the local church. Y'all tracking with me this morning? The answer to being effective in your friendships out there is being passionate about the relationships and the connections that you establish within the body. When you're walking with Jesus, and you're walking with Jesus in lockstep with other brothers and sisters in Christ, it's just a fact that things come easier under those circumstances than when you go alone. In my experience, the devil tempts me and jumps on me in ways that I never experience in the company of others when I'm alone. It's a dangerous place to be alone and under strong temptation. It's a, it's a dangerous thing to be wandering alone without the fellowship and the accountability of a local church. If we're really going to impact the world, being connected one with another is critically important. I want to say something else to you here. This is where I make my plea. Y'all ready? Our primary mechanism for making disciples as a church at Longview Point, what we do to make disciples is connect groups. It's just where we do it. 
That's, that's in, in our estimation, it's the best way for us to be the most effective and the most efficient at making disciples. That is, at encouraging people in sanctification, growing in grace and maturity, and setting you loose on the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are not involved in a connect group Bible study, you are always going to be underserved at Longview Point. That's just the fact. Now, we don't want you to be underserved. We want you to be connected. But we cannot connect for you. And my hope is that this morning you will count the value of those kinds of connections and that among other measures taken to, to ensure that you've established healthy relationships with those around you, that you'll get connected to a connect group ministry. I'm also aware of the reality that with all the COVID stuff that's been going on, there's some of you here this morning who have been faithful members of connect groups for a long, long time here. But because your, your rhythm of life has sort of been disrupted, you're just kind of out of sorts and you don't have reasonable health reasons at this point not to be there, today's the day to say, all right, I'm back in and I'm back on board. Now, so there may be some reasonable health issues, and some of our connect groups are still not meeting under normal circumstances. I got all that, and I'm not referring to what those issues might be. But for those of us who are healthy and whole and have, as my daddy would say, no excuse other than just being sorry, today's the day, right? Today's the day to bow up and, and to connect again, to be reminded of the reality that we desperately need those kinds of connections if we are to walk with Jesus. And here's the wonderful thing about the body of Christ. You might be astonished at some of the ways that those connections come together. My best friend for the first couple of years of walking with Jesus, I was 19 years old when God saved me. The best friend I had was a 70-some-odd-year-old man in our church. We didn't have a thing in the world in common. He was retired, still pilled around, a little work on the side. He loved a certain set of sports. I loved it. There was, we had nothing in this world in common except the only thing that mattered. His name is Jesus. You might be amazed at some of the ways that God knits your life, life together with others within the body of our church. And I want you to know you need it. Oh, you desperately need it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. and for its truth and for the church. Thank you for the gospel that binds us together. God, I, I, I pray that you would help us. You've blessed us, Lord, with many new people coming into the fellowship of our church. I pray that you'd help us to be good stewards of that gift, to reach out, to love beyond a, a mere membership connection, Lord. Help us to be a part of their life and to make them a part of our lives, even for those who have perhaps been here for a long time but have never stepped into connect group ministry or ne never gone the extra mile in order to make deep and meaningful connections. God, I pray that you would open doors, that that might be the case, even this morning. I pray that you'd use this invitation time to burden us, that we'd commit ourselves to walking faithfully with you, to walking faithfully with others. And God will give you all the glory and the praise for it. Strengthen us together, God. And may we be the kind of men and women who sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. And we ask it in Jesus' name.